back and live. I'm Jimmy Krupka, and welcome to Arc City. This podcast is supported by U.S. Ski and Snowboard and officially sponsored by Spider Active Sports. Spider has been an official supplier of the U.S. Ski team for 30 years. Visit spider.com to check it out. Today, for the main event, and one of my favorite interviews ever, truly, I bring you Ralph Green. I'll tell you who he is in a second. Then we give our good friend Doug Lewis a call. He's an Olympian, a broadcaster, and the unofficial grit meister from Elite Team Summer Camps. We ask him, straight up, whether this generation is less gritty than the last. Next, I've cooked up a delicious skiing history nugget about the three years of ski development that shook the ski world. And lastly, before we read the mail at the end, I debut a new segment. It's a nonprofit spotlight. But now, without further ado, an American Paralympian and one of the best one-leggers to ever click into a ski, Ralph Green. Ralph Green. Welcome to Arc City. What's up, man? It's a pleasure to be on, man. Thank you for having me, man. Yes. It's a pleasure to have you. I've been I've been watching your you, I watched your career and I and I've watched you ski before and I've I've you know I've definitely looked up to you. And so I'm I'm excited to have you on the show. I I got to say. So, first off, let's start with some fun stuff just about skiing, get to know you as a skier. And so for the people who don't know out there, you know, You've, you've got one leg and you're going 80 miles an hour on one leg. What's that like? Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what, man, before I even answer that, just kudos to all of the Paralympic skiers, man. Kudos to everybody that decides to just get out there and, you know, push, yeah. push their life, push the limits, whether you're visually impaired, whether you're paralyzed, you know, just to be able to adapt to get on the slopes. But for me, you know, with, with one leg, you know, it takes a lot of training, the my one leg, to be able to withstand going 80 miles an hour, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I may hold a record at the OTC for a single leg leg press, 780 pounds. You know, no um, way. Apollo <laughs> and I was kind of going at it, you know, one, one time when we met him. But, you know, to, to be able to go that fast and to be in control, um, it definitely takes a lot of discipline as far as, like, actually knowing the course right it takes discipline as far as like believing in yourself that you that you're able to make turns going that fast whether you're in a tough position with the outrigger or whether you're coming around a turn you know getting getting dynamic coming around yeah but it, it just it really really um pushes it pushes us to the limits especially you know, if we're, you know, coming off on, on, on you know, with, you know, coming off of a jump or something like that, like, like in, like in Vancouver, you know, in, in the Whistler course, you know, you're, you're, you're coming into the finish line. That's big jump. You know, flying yeah. 30 meters, yeah. you know, but, but right before the drop, that's when you're doing 75, 80 miles an hour on, on one leg, you know, yeah. so like to, just to be able to, number one, push yourself to be able to have fun, but also to know like, man. I don't want to eat it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I've seen, I've seen some gnarly Paralympic crashes. There's, uh, uh, there's this, uh, Instagram page called tangled outriggers. Have you seen that where it's just all the Paralympic crashes, um, and they get gnarly, but, and so the thing I was going to, yeah, I was going to talk about is how the, the room for error is, is so much smaller when you have less use of, of your limbs basically. Right. I mean, 
Absolutely. And you're what doing the, the and you're and you're skiing the same hills. In the same hills, yeah. Um, with with the, with the same side hills, the same cutoff. The Wumpa area is definitely um, a lot smaller. Um, let's just think about outriggers as a whole, right? Yeah. Um, like I actually um, some some years ago, I, I tore my labrum. I was doing a downhill in Aspen, um, the same hill that the women's GS was on, and I was coming around. I was coming around this turn, and my outrigger got caught in the snow and it just twisted my whole arm around. I wanted to tear my labrum. And that's just for putting my outrigger down, coming around a turn, right? You know, holes, you know, it's it's less likely for that to happen, you know, but, but, but yeah, just, you know, finding that balance or creating those dynamics because those, that same seat, that, that same dynamics to create the pressure in the ski that people with two legs do, I have to do that with one leg and I got to find a way how to do it with one leg. And I yeah. got to train my, right. Yeah. And, and knowing that it, you know, knowing where it starts, right. Knowing it starts with the ankle then it goes to the knee then it goes to, so like just understanding how to create. Yeah. It, it's a whole different, but so the, the interesting thing is, I mean, we're going to, I think we'll talk about, you, you know, your, the whole beginning of your career, but you never skied until you had one leg, right? And so there was yeah. that kind of interesting. Some some people, I guess, know how to ski beforehand, but you just that was skiing for you has always been one leg. I never even thought about skiing when I had two legs, man. Yeah. People that don't know, I'm from Brooklyn. You know, I'm from Bad Style. Like you know, the sports that I grew growing up was football, baseball, basketball, tennis. Yeah. You know, and, I, and I've always been really, really good. Like like exceptionally good at all. I mean, I was dunking the basketball at 14 years old. You know what I'm saying? I'm no yeah. tall guy. Like, you know, I'm six foot. Yeah. But when I was 14, you know, I might have been five, nine, five, ten, five, nine. And I was dunking, like not just no, <clears throat> no little weak dunk. Like I was dunking, dunking yeah. where like, like it was pretty impressive. So, so to, so to go from like a bunch of inner city sports, a bunch of sports that's popular in inner city, to eventually trying skiing and then, you know, moving to Colorado at 22 with the goal to, um, with the goal to not just be, you know, the first African-American male to ever compete in Olympics or Paralympics for Alpine skiing, but to be number one in the world. Like that was yeah. my goal. Yeah. It was like, I moved to Colorado and pursued this. I am moving there to hands down be the best in the world. And I had to start from scratch like at, like at 22. Yeah, that's I mean, that's amazing to me. Like people that learn to ski at 22 don't arc turns. You know that that's that's unheard of. And so why don't yeah. we why don't we t- talk about your story from the beginning? Can you can you take me through it from growing up in Brooklyn um, to losing your leg to you know finding you know figuring out how to ski? Absolutely, man. So um, so um, I. I, I like you said, I grew up in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, New York. You know, I grew up um, in the projects in, in Roosevelt Houses, um, which is, you know, still near and dear to my heart. You know, um, I, I was shot um, at the age of 15. I was shot in the back and I wound up losing my leg due to the gunshot wound, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and at this time, you know, I was a quarterback in high school on a varsity team. I was a sophomore. Um, I was a point guard um, on a basketball team. Um, I played baseball, like I literally played all sports and I was, I was good. Like, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I was like really, really I'll, good. No, I'll toot it for you. You were good. I mean, I, I've heard about it. You were good. Yeah. Like you were a five-star recruit in, in high school football. Um, 
Well, I, I, I wasn't recruited yet. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I was my my name was ringing bells, but 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 I wasn't recruited yet. Uh-huh. You know, that's kind of you know that was I, as much as I would love to claim those accolades. You know, um, I, I wasn't recruited yet, but I was definitely um, one of the best athletes probably in the city. That's the reason why my story got so much notoriety. Um, it got national notoriety, mm-hmm. right? But um, so I grew up, you know, in, in the projects where it was really, really challenging. Like we all competed against each other all the time. Like, I don't care if it was snowing out, we was playing tackle. You know, when we yeah. would go to practice, we would be doing Oklahoma drills on the city bus. Like, like, <laughs> like literally yeah. shows. Just, just head to head. Yeah. Head to head, you know, and if you got trucked, you just got trucked. Like you had to eat that, you know, until, yeah. until it was time. So it was the next time. So like we, I grew up in a very, very competitive environment, right? So then next thing you know, um, when I lost my leg, I thought it was over for sports for me. You know, yeah. I, ain't, I didn't want to do like any type of disabled sports because in my mind, I thought I was going to be just dominating everybody. I was like, I don't want to do that. Then next thing you know, I tried a couple of summer sports and I did really good. And then I tried winter sports. I tried skiing and this was the most challenging thing that I had ever done in my life. I tried skiing for the first time um, at 17 years old in Jack Frost Mountains in the Poconos. Uh-huh. And um, I saw this guy with one leg skiing um, who I went there with, and I tried to copy him. And lo and behold, my first day, I was going down Black Diamonds. I didn't know how to stop, but I was <laughs> mimicking like I, like I was mimicking him. Um, I was invited to this camp for, with the National Sports Center for Disabled, who's based out of Winter Park. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a bunch of coaches that was there, you know, kind of like recruiting. Yeah. So I didn't know better. You know, I was like, oh, if this guy can do it, then I can do it. So I so I skied, you know, for that four days. And that was it. Like, like I never didn't ski again, didn't even think about skiing again. But I didn't realize that the coaches from Winter Park were so impressed with my skiing in those four days. And they had tried to contact me a couple of times to come to Colorado. But uh-huh. at that point I wasn't ready mentally, you know, and I, I just, I just wasn't ready. Yeah. So next thing I called them at 22 and I was like, Hey, you guys remember me? I was like, of course we remember you. I was like, so, uh, can I still come out to winter park? You so, training? so what prompted that call? Like a few, like a few years go by. Right. And then suddenly right. you're 22. What, why do you think about skiing again? Why, why'd you call them? Great question. So, so at that point, I was kind of lost in life, man. I, I mean, I was a junior in college. I was I went to Long Island University, like one of the top private schools in New York City at that time. Um, I was working as a counseling specialist, working with like after school programs, helping young youth out. But personally, I was lost in life. Like I didn't have any direction as far as like where I wanted to be or how I wanted to get there. And I think it's something that a lot of people go through. It's like yeah. when you start envisioning yourself five years, 10 years down the line. And then I was like, well, maybe I should try to ski and stuff, you know, like maybe I should try to ski and like, yeah. so, so that's kind of like what prompted it. Just, just not having direction as far as like what I wanted to do. And then also realizing that I could come into a sport and possibly have an impact on it, like have an impact to, to urban communities, have an impact to defying expectations, right? Nobody goes in at 22 and make the national team in four years. Nobody. Yeah. And then be ranked third in the world 
you know, in, in four years, nobody does that. So it took, it took me wanting to be the first person on the hill every single day. Uh Um, and the last person off the hill every single day, it took me going to New Zealand, going to Hintertux, going to, you know, uh, uh, Chile, like, you know, it took all of that for me to even have the confidence to say that I'm better than the best guys out there. So that's kind of like, so that, that's, that's kind of what propelled, but it also took like, you know, people, the naysayers like, oh man, it's going to take you eight, nine years to make the national team. Yeah. I'm like, it was going to take you that long. <laughs> Watch <laughs> this. Yeah. Right. No, seriously. Yeah. So I took that challenge on, on a daily basis. I, I like, and I trained. I was up 4.30 in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning at the base of the ski area. There used to be a gym at the base of Winter Park. Uh-huh. And I was in there working out before, heavy workout before training. And then after training, I would work out again. So, you know, this was, you know, it, the dedication, the sole dedication that it took just to make the national team. And I was competing against, like, the guys I was competing against was no joke. You know, yeah. we're talking Jason Lala, Greg Menino, Monty Meyer. Like, these guys were disabled skiing. Like, they, they were the guys to beat. And they'd probably, been skiing, they'd probably been skiing for years and years longer than you had. Absolutely. Yeah. And he's and the interesting thing is I used to mimic these guys. I kid you not. You know how I said I, you know, I mimicked uh, the one guy the first yeah. day. But then when I started competing against these guys that were the best in the world, the best in the country, like I would watch their video, like I would go home and I would imagine them coming around turns, right? So I went from mimicking them to when I started being competitive with them, I started mimicking able bodied World Cup skiers. Like I started mimicking like oh. Herman Meyer. Yeah, like 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 I would watch World Cup winning runs. They used to come out on the VCR, VHS tapes. Yeah, I remember I those. Order. Yeah, I used to order them like every year. And I know USA got tired of me always calling like, "Hey, did you guys put my tape in the mail?" <laughs> you know, I used to pay my thirty dollars or whatever. But I used to order them, and that was part of my daily regimen, especially throughout um, the summer of two thousand and three and two thousand and four. That was the difference of me going home every day watching at least a half hour of world cup winning runs and imagining these guys like okay what if what if they got one leg so today i'm only focusing on the right leg everything the right leg do nothing else the next day i'm focusing on what their arms are doing the next day i'm focusing on every single race of how they enter the turn so mm-hmm. these are some of the things that propelled me from like in the 0203 season kind of you know people knowing about me to 0304 season jumping top five in the world at Super G, jumping top 10 in world rankings. And a lot yeah. of it was from studying ski races and the, and the history of skiing. Yeah, yeah, you gotta watch the film. So so you spend 15 years um, competing uh, in skiing. You end up being, you know, the best in the country in every event. Um, you know, your best world rankings are fourth in slalom, fifth in downhill, third in Super G in the world. Um, and you know, needless to say pretty good, especially for someone who started at, at 22, which is incredible to me, but I want to talk about this trend, this transition, um, from, uh, you know, you know, no one, you said you didn't, the thought of skiing didn't cross your mind where you grew up and then you moved to Colorado to ski to the snow and the mountains. 
um, what, like, what do your friends say? What, what do people, what's the kind of thing they would say to you? Like, what are you like doing? Oh my goodness. So like, I think initially people weren't shocked that I made the decision to travel out West and ski. But at the same time, like my friends and my family knew that like, once I set my mind to something that I was going to get the emotional support that I needed. Um, prior to the move, I, I still would like work out a lot. Like I was the guy that would be outside on the monkey bars doing pull-ups or doing push-ups or doing mm-hmm. dips. Like I was so ripped at 21, 22 that you would have thought that I was training to be in the Paralympics or Olympics. Yeah. But as like, but as like a weightlifter or something, like I was super, super ripped, right? So they weren't shocked. And subconsciously, they knew something was coming, but nobody knew what it was. I didn't even know what it was. Yeah. So so when I told them, they were more proud. Like, we don't know nobody that ski. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't yeah. like, I, I, like I used to see skiing when I would turn the TV sometimes and see skiing on TV. I didn't know anybody that skied, like let alone yeah. ski rate. Yeah. So for them, they also got bragging rights, right? Like, oh, that's my dude. You know, he from from over here, he out in Colorado, you know. So I think, and for family, one of the biggest honors that I used to get was when I used to get a, you know, you get all your U.S. ski team jackets, you get all, you get everything, because a lot of people don't know that um, the U.S. disabled ski team used to be under the U.S. ski team. So we used to uh, get the same uniforms, like up until uh, maybe 2012 or something like that, or 2010 somewhere around there, but we all got the same uniforms. So it was under USSA. So I used to get all of this swag, all of these jackets, and I used to give them to my brothers in Brooklyn, give them to my uncles, give them to my mother. Like to have my mother walking around the hood with a US ski team jacket, you yeah. know, nobody else, nobody else, nobody else can get that. So while I was jacket chasing, yeah, but I was doing that so my family could wear it, but not for me. I I didn't, I, I wore what I wanted to wear, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, you know, it, it was different to see those, them so happy of my accomplishments. Yeah. So what were the kind of culture shocks to you going into the ski world? Um, and then like, what were the similarities in the cultures? And then what were, what were the differences? I think some of the culture shocks for me was realizing like how much people my age, how much people like really have money. Like it was oh, yeah. people that had money, money. Whether I competed against them, like their families had money. Like again, I'm I'm broke. You know, I'm eating ramen noodles. You know, my mother happened to send me. We used to call them oodles and noodles back in the day. My mother used to have to send me send me boxes noodles and all that. And my friends going out sushi, ain't got no jobs, but just swiping. Yeah, like, I'm like, how they just how everybody got so much money? But that so that was one of the shocks for me, like like realizing like how much money was out there, money to be made, you know, money to, whether it was passed down or whatever, yeah, you know, but like the similarities was like the determination, you know, knowing, especially when you get to know people, like whether they got money or not, like people still hungry. Like everybody still want to be number one. Everybody still want to be the best. Okay. Ain't nobody give like, so just because they had money, that don't mean that they wasn't, that they didn't want it. You know, yeah. so like that was a similarity, like, that that I appreciated is like I feel like I was the hungriest, hungriest person that I know. Like I wanted to more than anybody, but but to see that hunger in my teammates, whether it was trying to make the team or when I was on the team or just amongst other athletes 
that I raced against, seeing that hunger, and there's nothing that can stop that. When, when somebody want it and somebody put their mind to it, and you're and, and, and it can, you're doing something that nobody else can do, you're part of a fraternity that there's seven billion people on this earth. You're part of a fraternity that not even 0.01 percent of the people are part of. Saying I represent the United States, or I, you know, did this, or I raced in the nationals, I placed in the nationals, I, you know, raced on the World Cup. Like, so when you take that, you ha I, I had no choice but to but to be humbled and to learn from like a lot of my teammates too. That it don't matter where you're from, if you're hungry, you're hungry. If you want it, you want it. I like that. And then what were some things like you you mentioned just how much you worked out. Um, and you were an incredible athlete. What were there things that you you took to this the skiing world that your teammates probably appreciated in you, like different perspectives or different you know mental skills or whatever? Absolutely, man. I, I think well, first and foremost, like I, I, although I've learned how to, especially in my current role, like I've learned how to be a people's person. Like I didn't know how to be a people's person. Mm -hmm. I just didn't take no junk from nobody. I didn't care who you was, where you was from. I don't care. Like, you know, like if you talk junk, like you better be able to back your junk up. And I think that that's something that that my teammates and my friends like really, really appreciated because I kept that same energy. Like, I don't care where, what part of the world I'm in. I could be in the hood in Brooklyn or I could be in, you know, some luxury town. Like if somebody do something stupid, I'm calling them out. You're like, yo, that was stupid. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so I think like, I think, and not only that, one probably the biggest thing that people took from me is win, lose, or draw. It's very rare that you caught me still not being happy, right? Like even it was times I got my butt kicked, I got demolished, right? It's times I got demolished in the ski race. I might be a little pissed, but at the end of the day, like I'm gonna just let it go. Like I'm gonna let it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna let it go because I know like if I don't fall. I can I can be in there, so I, I've never ever once felt like oh this person beat me because I lacked my skills. I always was like oh you kicked my butt because I did something wrong on that hill. You know what I'm saying? I made that bad turn, and I and that's the way that the mental preparation that I told myself. Everybody's different, but I was like I got my butt kicked by two seconds because I didn't take that straight enough, or I didn't you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I didn't hear. To come out, I, I wasn't when I pushed out of the start. I was thinking about the wrong thing. So I think that's what people really, really appreciate. Like even my competitors is like after the race is like, how are you happy? How are you smiling? How are you this? It's like, cause I'm still having fun. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm I'm still sitting in some some little village in in Switzerland. You know, I'm still you know in in Asia. You know, in Yangpyeong. You know, I'm still like wherever. Yeah, when I could have been on a block in front of the store. Exactly. You, you have that perspective. Like I, I could be back in Brooklyn not skiing. So, you know, right. I mean, does that, does that count? Like, is that part of it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you, when you come from where I come from and you have the opportunity to do something different, um, especially, you know, especially being a black man on a sport where there's not a lot of blacks at, like it's definitely not a black on the world cup. I've never ever seen another black person yeah. race on the world cup like for the 15 years that I've been on the World Cup. You know what I'm saying? Like represent America. You know, I've seen some people from different parts of Africa come in and, mm -hmm. you know, different, you know, but I've never seen like somebody represent America on the World Cup. Like, you know, so like it was definitely, it was like, I could be doing this. 
you know, I got I got a friend that that, that got killed. You know what I'm saying? From from hanging out, like being on the block. Like I could, you know, there's so many different things that could happen. But yet, if, if you look on, um, I started blogging mm-hmm. back in 2006. I started coming out with with blogs, putting them on YouTube. I probably got like 150 on YouTube. And they always started off as Ralph Green is. So, right? So some of them is like Ralph Green is in Korea. Ralph Green is on a gondola with such and such. So, so I've been started doing that because I wanted my friends and my family to live vicariously through me. You might have never yeah. been to Tarim, but now you had the YouTube video from 10, 15, 16 years ago of me and Torino. You know, like like so so that's something that I consciously was doing and it helped. Now my friends can relate with Salzburg. Now my friends can relate with Vancouver, you know, so many different places. Yeah, I I love that. So you and you and you mentioned being the only African American man in the sport, um, you know, on the World Cup. And you, you know, not only you're African American and you you've got one leg. I imagine people stare. Like, so how do you deal with that? Is it, I mean, is that right? No, no. You, it's it's pretty accurate, right? But there was a time in my life where I was super, super like self conscious about my appearance. Like I wouldn't come outside without a prosthetic leg, and and I I, I lost my leg at the hip. Like I I would be in pain, just walking around limping and everything like that. And then it got to a point where I was like, I, I'm not wearing that leg. Like I don't know, I'm done. You know, I'm done. Uh, and it became furniture, right? So then next thing you know, I went from that mindset to I don't care what people, because now somebody look at me, I'm fly. You know what I'm saying? And not to sound like all that, but I stayed dripping, so it's like I went from people looking at me, my mentality stating that people looking at me got a disability. Now I'm like, oh, they looking at me, they're trying to see what new ones I got on, or you know what I'm saying? Well, they like my constructs, like something like that. Like, you know, yeah. so my whole mentality shifted from people looking at me being the negative to like, to now they recognizing the drip, you know? And I was thinking about that years ago, like when I moved to Colorado, you know, I hate to, I, I might sound like a, you know, but when I moved to Colorado, I brought like 50 sneakers with me. I ain't have a lot of money, but I had my sneakers. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a bag of sneakers. I love that, man. And that's something that any anyone, able-bodied, what, what anyone can take is just like flipping that that confidence switch in your brain. Um, and so and so the other thing about, you know, kind of sticking out a little bit is I've, I've, I've heard that... Um, you know, you're an, you're incredibly, uh, nice guy. Like you, like everyone, everyone I talk to says Ralph Green, best guy ever. And I, and you know, I've heard when I talked to Andre Horton, um, when I did a podcast with him and he's, and a lot of people say the same thing about him. And does, do you feel like you kind of have this, this pressure kind of to, um, like make sure that you like represent yourself really well. Does that, does that get tiring that kind of pressure or? Well, first of all, shout out to Dre, man. Dre <laughs> is my guy. And like when I was coming into this sport, you know, I used to see this big muscular guy coming down the slopes. And so even though I'm older than Andre, like, you know, he was, he was doing this like before me. So I will always give him his props, man. And I wanted to see him succeed. So, 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 so much. I think, I think there's different perspectives to, to answer your question. Like, mm-hmm. 
you know, um, I, I think like, so one of my uncles told me when I first started traveling the world, one of my uncles said, Ralph, if, wherever you go, wherever you go, if you walk with your head up, people are going to treat you like you're walking with your head up. Mm-hmm. If you walk with your head down, people are going to treat you like you're walking with your head down. So he's like, your presentation and the way you carry yourself is going to be a direct reflection, especially if somebody never met you when you first encountered them. So I've always kept that. And this was one of my uncles that was in the streets while he was on drugs, everything like that. But he was shocked. You know what I'm saying? And he told me, I never forgot it. So I've always tried to carry myself when I meet people, when I'm connecting with people, when I'm talking to people to make sure that they can get, like, to make sure, like, I'm, I'm bringing my full self to that conversation, especially with skiing, especially with you. I used to do a lot of youth, you know, conferences. Like, I used to, mm-hmm. you know, work with, you know, boys and girls clubs through my sponsors. So I'm big on making sure that the youth like understand who I am as a person and also how you carry yourself. You know what I'm saying? Being an elite athlete, I don't have time to be a jerk if if I'm an elite athlete. Like I don't have time to be a jerk if I know that on the hill, if you look up the hill and you see me coming down the hill and you see me skiing gracefully, I don't want somebody to say, oh, man, he was was a jerk. Like he was an asshole. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't don't want that. I want people to be like his, his mannerisms matches the way he ski. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. he could be a beast when he coming down that hill, but he could be smooth when he coming down that hill. So it's like, so so to answer your question, I wouldn't say that it's a lot of weight because that's the way that I was raised. You know, my my family raised me, you know, uh my family raised me good. You know, when I was a kid, you know, if you did something wrong, you gotta be point blank. Like 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 you I come from that era. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like I, I never really like, 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 I always carry myself with respect, and I'm representing my family. Yeah. So, it, it, as we near the end of this conversation, it, it, it's it to anybody listening, they can't, like, they have to help. You know, I'm not going to say have to, but it it seems obvious that diversity in anything, especially ski racing, is only beneficial because hearing your stories and getting your perspective you bring so much to the sport being from a different background. Um, and then, you know, you also even, even to think about just including more people in ski racing also means that you're including a bigger pool, which means better athletes. You know, you, you snap up, like you're, you were a four sport dunking at ninth grade kind of athlete. Like if we can get more um, people involved in ski racing, I think it's better. But this is the million dollar question, right? And I and I watched this seminar that Henry Rivers ran with the U.S. Ski and Snowboard, and you were on that panel. How, in kind of a short way, what's kind of your thoughts on how to create more diversity? How to get more people in ski racing that wouldn't otherwise be in ski racing? Absolutely, man. Well, first, thank you, Jimmy, for touching on that question. Um, so, so I have a couple of different perspectives, and I'm not going to drain it. Uh, one of my perspectives is like, like understanding the the target, the marketing target, right? So are we exposing people from different areas to skiing, let alone ski racing, right? Am I am I going to see that same poster of one of our ski superstars in New York City or 
and at the same post that I'm seeing when you're driving down a highway in Denver. Yep. You know, am I going to see like that same Land Rover commercial being aired in other communities that I'm seeing in communities which are ski communities? So I think it starts with how we market the sport. If we take any other sport, any other sport, you name it, cricket, polo, I don't care, any other sport that's kind of not traditional urban sport, there's a lot of diversity in it, even on a professional level, even if we look at hockey. Right. Obviously, needless to say, if we look at golf, we, we you pick the sport. I also think that integrating um, this sport into school, you know, yeah. there's the Poconos is an hour and a half away from the city. You know, um, hey, is anybody interested in skiing? Yeah. You know, like an after school um, program kind of thing, right? I'm kind of thinking, you know, way down a lot, but even like a team, even yeah. like a club, you know. Um, but then also, one one more thing is, I think it's also the responsibility of organizations to make sure that there's some type of representation at like events. So say, for example, there is a small ski hill in New Jersey that Sean Mallier runs. Um, guess who showed up to that ski area? And there was a bunch of uh, black and Latino kids. Lindsey Vaughn showed up. Yeah. She showed up and, you know, just for those kids to see at that time, you know, the best female ski racer, arguably the best female ski racer in in the world, that alone, and and those kids are still active skiing. So sometimes it's just presence. It's just showing up. It's it's having that faith, having that representation, you know, saying like, okay, I understand that, you know, it might be a challenge to make it to this level as it is for everybody, but I'm still here. Because I, you know, I think back to like you you say the presence thing really all it takes to inspire a kid is like seeing Lindsey Vaughn once because I, I saw I wasn't planning to ski race. My parents weren't really ski racers. They were just skiers. I saw a poster of Bodie Miller, like a Jeep ad. And I was like, I want to do that. That looks good. That looks cool. Right. Um, Imagine an athlete um, or imagine you see the picture behind me. Maybe not. It's just a picture of me just free skiing. Right? Yeah. Like, imagine seeing a picture like that in an urban community, like somebody who people in urban communities can relate with. Imagine somebody saying, oh, wow, I see a skier, a kid, a three or four year old kid. It doesn't matter what color. I see a skier. Like, I now I know what skiing is. Now when I'm changing the channel, I may be interested. So to further take the, the, the your, your question, it's about opportunity. It's about opportunity to think, opportunity to wish, opportunity to know like that is something that I can be doing. And I don't think that that, that opportunity is there yet. I don't think a lot of people know it. Do I have a big job to do? Absolutely, I have a big job to do. You know, do, but I think as a community we do, mm-hmm. you know? And, and this isn't, again, this isn't just for black community. This is for, like communities outside of the communities we know in the ski world. Yeah. Right. Communities outside of the communities we train in, you know, that we're consistently going to. So that's kind of, it's kind of my thoughts on it. Yeah. Know? I mean, I, I love that. And you, you, it's basically the first step, right? It's the first step is just getting marketing to the right, like just getting the word out, basically getting people inspired, telling people, Hey, this is what ski racing looks like. And then you're right. Like it's, it's it's just about getting ski there's so many 
urban areas and just large population areas that are close to the mountains, but not in the mountains. And there's just so much potential there, I think. I guess the the next step is figuring out how to create those school programs and get those people to the mountains. But um, at the end of the, you know, yeah, you you have to talk. But, you know, one of the biggest organizations outside of USSA is the National Brotherhood of Skiers. And there's chapters all around the country, right? So one of the big conversations, you know, off the camera that we had with Tiger is, you know, hey, when there's MBS summits, there's kids there, there's youth there, how amazing would it be to have someone show up, whether it's a coach, whether it's an athlete, you know, especially if it's like like a, like a big event. It doesn't necessarily have to be the summit, you know, like where everybody come out and have a good time. It can be other events, but like to have some type of representation there and let people know. That's, that's like if an NBA coach or NBA star comes to, you know, Gauchos or, or comes to the Rucker Park or something like that, that people can say, okay, they have interest. They're showing interest. The NBA is showing interest in what we're doing on a street level. So it's kind of like the same thing. I'm in. Yeah, I'm in. I'd love. To, I'd love to go to a, a National Brotherhood of Skiers event. And and so that's actually a perfect segue um, into the question I always ask at the end of the show, which is, I want to give you time to whether it's thanking sponsors, plugging any organizations you work with or projects you're working on, or just say anything you want to say. Yeah, man. I, so, so there's definitely something that, that I, I just want to say to people, right? Um, and this is kind of like my phrase, my coin phrase, right? We are in dire need of leaders, right? Especially in our industry. Don't be afraid to be a leader. You know, don't be afraid to be different. And don't be afraid to think outside of the box. If we look at some of the great skiers in recent years, those guys have thought outside the box. Like I, I sit back and I watch things. I watch how when 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 Bodie Miller was sponsored by a lot of these companies, he's the person that got the ski team sponsored. He's the one that had the head sponsor first and then negotiated it or him and his team to it. Now they sponsor him the whole team. I, I remember when Sobe was just Bodie's sponsor. And then they started sponsoring the whole team. I remember when Borrelia was just Bodie's sponsor. And then they started sponsoring the whole team. So, like, there's a lot of things that happen behind the scenes. It's a lot of, like, like even with Under Armour. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just give people a small little fun fact. Even with Under Armour. I was out playing golf back a while ago. And there was a guy that I was golfing. His name was Ryan Wood. He was the VP of sales and marketing for Under Armour. And I came to him and I was like, hey, you know, uh, you know, like he was telling me about his product. They only did summertime stuff. And I was like, why don't you give me, you know, some stuff and I'll try it out and I'll let you know how it works in the wintertime. And then next thing you know, I told my coaches and then I got, I said, Ryan, you know, would you mind sending my whole team stuff so we could try it out in, 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 in the wintertime? You know, I kid you not, fun fact. So he sent us stuff. And then a year later, he started sponsoring Jeremy Bloom. And then Under Armour started picking up winter athletes. But true story, when it was only doing football and stuff like that, I thought outside of the box and I was like, hey, why don't you, let's, let's do something to where you could bring this to the winter sports. And I was kind of the test dummy for that. So it's, it's not being afraid to not just be selfish and say, I want to do it by myself. What can you do for the overall organization? You know, and then, then now 
like an Under Armour and US ski team. Lindsey Vaughn owes you one. No, you know what? I, I don't solely take responsibility back, but if you talk to Ryan Woods, who again was the, was the vice president of sales and marketing, um, he'll tell you, like, we had that relationship for like two years before they even thought about sponsoring the US ski team. So I only say that to say, and I use Bodie as an example as well. There's a lot of things that's happened when you get the opportunity, when you can take care of yourself as an athlete, spread the love. There's a lot of things that can happen. Well, when you're gone, you may be planting the seed for something. When you're gone, it could blossom into something else. You know, so it, 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 so that's what I would tell athletes. And grind, do your homework. You know, email companies. You know, uh, uh, go after your sponsors. Don't wait for nobody to give you nothing. Don't wait for somebody to say, "Hi, huh, here you go. You know, I want to go with this company. I literally used to email like 50 companies. And I always thought about companies that have nothing to do with skiing. Like I would email like totes umbrellas. You know, I would email like just companies that have nothing to do with it. I, and, and, and then I would go to the common companies and I would tell them, I would say, hey, listen, I'm not asking you for nothing. I'm telling you why you should work with me. And the reason why you should work with me is because I'm going to be the best. So nobody wants nobody asking them. But even if your best friend is like, hey, Jimmy, let me get 500 hours. You might give it to him, but you're going to be like, what do you need 500 hours for? Yeah. But if your best friend comes to you and say, hey, Jimmy, I'm going through the situation, you might not even let him talk. you like, yo, here goes 500 hours. It's the same thing. So when people out there looking for new sponsors, don't go asking nobody for them. Ain't nobody going to give you nothing. Tell them why they should give it to you. And tell them why they should work with you. That's what I'm gonna leave it at. Like, and, and, and it's been helpful for me throughout my whole ski career. Whether you ask, you can ask Dave Pazic, you can ask anybody that I used to deal with. I ain't never asked them for nothing. It was like, you should work with me because of this. And I was able to market myself. And that's the reason why I got my marketing concentration on my MBA, because mm-hmm. I love marketing. Well, so I wanted brief, briefly at the end to say, like, you know, you did. You got. You did your college education. You got your MBA, and now uh, where are you working? Yeah, I, I currently work with. Uh, currently work with PepsiCo. You know, we, we just had our biggest week. Uh, we just had Super Bowl week, and for those who don't know, um, PepsiCo like Speedo, PepsiCo owns Frito Lay. You know, um, Frito Lay is about sixty eight percent of the company, but I currently work with them. You know, I manage sales in a particular chain. You know, um, and, and and I do got to say that this is non affiliated with my work organization. But, uh, but, you know, yeah, I've been fortunate enough to, you know, not just think about skiing. I started setting myself up for success when I knew I was going to retire. Mm-hmm. I was like, let me just hold on one more year just to make sure I get that free schooling. And I got the free schooling. And then I was like, let me hold on one more year to get into this master's program. So, like, towards the end of my career, it wasn't, it wasn't nowhere near the best. But I was getting a free education off the deal. Yeah. You better believe that. Like, yeah. And I didn't just leave with undergrad. I finished my undergrad, and then I got my MBA with a marketing concentration. So I would advise anybody, if, if you, you know, look up those those three programs with, with the U.S. Olympics and Paralympics, go to school online. I was going to school online and being effective. Like I was I was being world champs, you know, the night before world champs. I got a paper that's due. <laughs> yeah. But I still was getting up the race, and they both complimented each other. I, I graduated oh, yeah. cum laude, and I graduated with honors in grad school. So I was just as good in school as I was what I brought to to the uh, to the uh, slopes. They complement each other. Yeah. Take advantage of the free schooling if you have the opportunity. I tell that to anybody. Yeah. Sound mind, sound body. Do you get on the ski mountain 
uh, these days? I mean, you want to know it's crazy, man? Like in five years, I think I skied 10 times, man. You know, uh, being that I just moved to, uh, we just moved to Bellevue on Washington. There's a couple of ski areas that's close to here. So I'm looking forward to, first thing I do is I actually got to get fitted for a boot. I still got my head rebel. And I'm like, I refuse to continue to ski in a race boot. Like I did that no. for so long. Yeah. So, so I actually got to get like, a, I got to get like a, like, like a boot that ain't, you know, that, that, that isn't as hard on the body, you know, cause I'm not going to be competing. I need like a nice recreational boot. But and then I plan on getting out, you know. But but that's now it's it's 100% leisure, you know. Um, Adaptive Spirit is is one of the organizations that I'm that I'm I'm, I'm actually on a board of, and we raised like half the budget for the U.S. Paralympic ski team, you know. So like I mean, and this is all the telecommunications companies, cable companies coming together um, to raise money for the U.S. disabled ski team. And I want to say Paralympics kind of match that. So that is their budget. So I am still affiliated, although I don't get out a lot. You know, I'm, and, and I'm honored to be able to represent and be the first athlete on that board with executives, you know, CEOs, CMOs of some of the biggest telecommunication companies in the world. So, so I, and, and they appreciate my voice and my value. That's cool. Well, for anybody who wants to uh, learn more or get involved, Adaptive Spirit, check them out, and National Brotherhood of Skiers. And Ralph Green, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, loved hearing your story. Loved conversing with you. And I hope that the people listening came away with some new stuff to think about. Jimmy, I appreciate you, my man. I can't wait to see you back on the slopes because I'll definitely be following. I don't get out a lot, but I follow you. I follow River. I follow all of y'all, man. I want y'all all the next wave. So I want to see y'all dominate. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. So I've got a little postscript for you because Ralph and I talked for a while after I stopped recording. By the end, I was ready to run through a brick wall. He's just such an inspiring, positive guy. Pretty awesome. Anyway, he and I talked about the specifics of Paralympic racing. And the year he made the U.S. team, 2004, was the year the system switched from having separate categories like paraplegic, one-leggers, one-armers, etc., to having everyone compete against one another with different calculated handicaps. So while Ralph was usually the best one-legger in the world, his official rankings were based off of results against all Paralympic classes. There's a whole discussion in there about whether the handicaps are fair enough, all that. Anyway, the second thing we talked about, I just had to get the numbers. So Ralph would put up 345 pounds on a back squat, 350 on the bench, which he explained was actually really difficult because you only have one leg for stabilization, and 780 pounds on the leg press, aka he just maxed the thing out. I knew he had a big leg, but he told me it was 32 inches in circumference. That's the size of my waist. All right, Doug Lewis, welcome to Arc City. Uh, it's good to be back. Yeah, glad glad to have you back, Doug. Um, and so, first off, right off the bat, we're we're gonna hit all of this in a quick five minutes. Grit. How do you define grit, and why it's why is it important in ski racing? 
Well, number one, you got to realize grit is a skill. It's it, just like a technical skill of planting your pole or carving or a physical skill of agility. Grit is a mental skill. Uh, you can compare it to focus, confidence, handling stress, uh, keywords. So, you know, right away, you're, you aren't born with or without it. Everybody can develop it. So okay. it is a mental skill. And grit to me is the skill of looking at your situation and accepting that it's going to be hard, that it's going to suck, right? No matter how dire or tough or uncomfortable, you accept it, you look at it right in the face, respecting it and say, yes. You say, um, I am going to turn this into a positive. I'm going to turn this situation into an opportunity. I'm going to take this step into darkness. Um, I'm going to be happy being uncomfortable. And that skill uh, can be learned. Um, and I, you know, I was trying to figure out how I learned it growing up, but I still use it and I still practice it. I've been running 100 mile ultras. And in my first 100 mile or three years ago, I had the torn quad because I had tripped, but I had, uh, evaluated it. Uh, I just kept going. It was okay. I had a black eye and my face was bleeding because I fell, <laughs> tripped again. And I was bonking. It's 2 a.m. and I still have 26 miles. I still have a marathon to go. And I looked at that situation and, and you know, what do you do? It's so easy to quit. Yeah. But I've been practiced and I have this skill. I'm like, I'm just diving deeper. Let's see if I can run this last uh, 26 miles. If I have to crawl, I will crawl. So it's a skill that I've been practicing and um, perfecting and will always practice and perfect. But anybody can learn it. Anybody can do it, which I think is a positive, positive message. I think so too. And I, the reason I go to you for grit is because I know that you live the lifestyle of grit. And still, even after a grueling career on the World Cup, you're out there doing these ultra marathons. And now let's talk about you have seen generations with this elite team camps. You've seen generations and generations of ski racers um, right in front of you. And you've been trying to teach them grit. And a question that a lot, a lot of people say, hey, this generation's softer than the last one. <laughs> Is that true? What, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I've been doing this 30 years and I've actually, you know, I'm going to be truthful. I've had to change. I've had to quote unquote, dumb down elite team a little bit because the kids, um, as I said, it's a skill. Anybody can learn it, but they are not coming in with that skill as developed as 30 years ago. I guess that's okay. a nice way of saying it. Mm -hmm. Um, they are not as open to being uncomfortable. Um, they aren't as eager to say yes. They're not as eager to push those limits. Um, they're not okay losing. They don't know that losing is an opportunity. Losing is a gift. Failure is a gift. So it may, I may be able to, um, I may only be able to move their grit factor from four to six mm -hmm. instead of 30 years ago, I was moving it from six to nine. So, um, I basically, the answer is, yeah, they're a little softer, but boy, at Elite Team and, at, and I'm sure at many other programs, these kids want to learn grit. They want to be yeah. put in a situation that is safe, positive, but full of suffering and follow that coach and follow their teammates into that darkness and, and come out 
good or bad, they're going to come out smiling and having learned grit. Okay, and so now the follow-up to this has to be for the kids listening, for even the, the, the guys who are ski racing at a high level, and especially for the parents, what is the first step towards getting grittier? Um, I think you need to, uh, you, you need to have a mentor, whether it's a, a coach, your parent, a teammate, you need someone there with you until you're ready to just go off on your own, but you need to safely put yourself in those tough situations, whether it's weather situation, a tough workout, um, doing something you've never done before. And with that mentor, coaching you or with that teammate beside you go into that darkness safely always (laughs) safely but go go step off that you know jump out into that uncomfortableness and what's the two things that can happen number one you're going to be successful you're going to get through that night of running at 2 a.m you're going to uh get through that tough obstacle course and that's a positive experience that gives you confidence the other side of the coin is that you fail fail is probably better than succeeding failure. You've learned something about yourself Mm -hmm. and you've learned something about doing it again. And that is going to give you the confidence to retry it. So safely putting yourselves in those gnarly situations, you can't lose because you're either going to succeed and have confidence or fail and learn a whole lot. It's, it's, it's that, it's that kind of exercises that, that should be, uh, put to kids as much as possible gotcha and ski racing after all is a lot of grit doug lewis thank you for being uh, here in arc city and uh, i look forward to you contributing more in the future all right get out there and push your limits yeah All right, you know what time it is. We are going to devour a delicious skiing history nugget. I'm not sponsored by them. I I just paid for the subscription. The Journal of the International Skiing History Association. I get their their issues, and I've done this before. I'm just going to read from this. So the three years that shook the ski world, from 1929 to 1932, apparently this is when all of this incredible revolution happened in skiing i was wondering i'm always trying to figure out what happened when did skis go from wooden to metal edges and when did bindings go from a free heel to a locked downhill well it's this three-year period and basically skiing before that was a, a few dozen people at half a dozen meets every year in europe and it only happened in soft snow because that's where you could only make turns you had wooden edges and then in december 1917 there was a mountaineer and ski jumper named Rudolf Lettner, and he had to self-arrest. He was sliding down the mountain. He had to self-arrest with the metal tip of his pole, and he realized that he could make steel edges for skis. Spent 10 years trying to figure it out, but once he did, Lettner's daughter finished second in the downhill at the very first Austrian Championships in 1928 and went on to podium in a bunch of other races with these metal edges. You know, the first Lauberhorn in Switzerland, everyone started using steel edges. The top six guys all had steel edges. Suddenly, in the span of three weeks, as what they say, 
all of the top alpine races in Europe were using steel edges. A similar thing happened with the free heel. They put this spring on their heels, so their heel stayed down, and suddenly the combination of that and the edges, people were going way faster. Like in the Dartmouth downhill, the fastest time in 1929 with wooden edges and the free heel was 12 minutes. It got down to seven minutes three years later with the Kandahar bindings and the steel edges. And so suddenly the sport has changed and alpine racing was suddenly interesting and a spectator sport. And at the 1936 Olympic Games in Garmisch, 50,000 people turned out to watch the slalom. Compare that to 10 years prior where it was just a fringe sport. So really steel edges and these Kandahar bindings and this guy named Lettner and changed the whole sport of ski racing. I don't know. I get excited. I get excited about skiing history. Pretty cool. Anyway, the shape ski was big, but this might've been bigger. Before we get to the mail, I've got a new segment for you. I've decided I'm going to start highlighting or spotlighting. I think I called it a different nonprofit organization every week. The organization this week is something I've promoted a lot on social media. It's called the Share Winter Foundation. The whole goal is to get more youth involved in winter sports participation, and there's a particular emphasis on targeting areas and demographics that typically don't get winter sports exposure. I think this is hugely important. I think it's just stupid how inaccessible and expensive not only ski racing but just skiing is. So the ultimate goal of the foundation, in their own words, is to make winter sports more accessible to a broader, more diverse community and share winter with 100,000 youth by 2028. If you'd like to volunteer or donate, visit sharewinterfoundation.org. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. Wonder who it's from? First up is an email I got from Jim Bob, who said, I especially enjoyed the interview with Nyman as we were friends in the junior ranks. I know you were busy, but after catching up some episodes, especially when you and Lucas were talking about a lack of ski racing content out there, is there any way you can put out more episodes? We need your content to fill the void. Jim, I, I, I wish I could put out more content. I'm trying to. And thank you for you know, pushing me to do so. I'm just really busy coming back from this broken leg and a couple of odd jobs, but I hear you. I'm going to keep working for you guys. And Alea said, get a different kid from each academy. She, she, she mentioned trying to kind of do a little, get different kids' perspectives on different academies. So this sparked an idea. I want to do an episode that highlights the stories of ski racers from Every category, young, old, high school, college, elite levels during the pandemic season. And just look at everyone's experiences with the pandemic. Could be cool. And that will do it for us here in Arc City. Shout out to everyone who responded to my Instagram story. That was super fun to talk to all of you. Keep responding. Keep tagging me. Keep hashtag. Do hashtag Arc City. Um, we're just trying to grow this thing. It's always the goal, trying to reach more people with this positivity and education, whatever, you know, Arc City is. Click subscribe, give me a good review, and the most helpful thing you can do is recommending an episode to your friends. I really appreciate you guys listening. If you've made it this far in the episode, I know you're a true fan. The next episode should be a good one, and I'm just swimming in 
great ideas for future episodes. I'm super excited. The population of Arc City continues to grow. So make sure to shred some arcs, keep listening, and I will see you right back here for the next episode. Until then, I'm Jimmy Kripka, and thank you for visiting Arc City.